What companies deserve your hard-earned dollar? Which would you want to work for? How can you know if they share your values? Just ask us. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks who really means business in supporting workers, customers, communities, the environment, and shareholders. We measure progress, track success, and help them be better. When you see the Just Capital seal, you know what's real because just business is better business. Visit justcapital.com to learn who makes your dollar count. Welcome to the First Light Podcast with excerpts from our radio broadcast of Tuesday, April 19. I'm Michael Toscano. Well, it's on the Russian army, which was in some disarray after its failure to capture the capital of Kiev and finding stiffer resistance than expected all over Ukraine, has finished licking its wounds and regrouping. Now hitting the country with the expected massive offensive to at least control the east and strategic parts of the south. That's ahead in just a few moments. Cheers in the skies over America last night as airline after airline announced the end of mandatory mask wearing on domestic flights. This after a judge struck down the remaining two weeks of the federal mask mandate on public transportation. We'll be spending time on that this morning. We're also heading to Nevada as we continue looking at interesting Senate races and we'll get a close-up view of what might be a Republican pickup there. All ahead in the unique morning mix at First Light. Clayton Neville begins our correspondent close-up now with the new phase in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, potentially bigger and potentially bloodier than what has already been inflicted on the people of that nation. Clayton? Michael, while Russian forces reposition to the east, specifically to the Donbass region, it doesn't mean the attacks are limited to just that area. Yesterday, airstrikes in the western city of Lviv killed at least seven and damaged Ukrainian military warehouses. Moscow said its missiles struck more than 20 military targets. U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price said one thing's clear. Russia, more than just launching an invasion, more than just launching a war, uh, has launched, is undertaking uh, a campaign of terror, a campaign of brutality, uh, a campaign of despicable aggression. In the east, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said during his nightly address that Russian troops have begun the battle for the Donbass. And that a significant part of the entire Russian army is concentrated there, including in Mariupol. The Ukrainians are still resisting. Uh, the city has not fallen to the Russians, uh, but they continue to pound it from the air and, and through uh, and through long range fires. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby referred to the uptick in violence from the Russians as a strategy called shaping. They're trying to set the conditions for uh, more aggressive, more overt and larger ground maneuvers uh, in the Donbass. According to Kirby, Ukrainians are depending on artillery for this phase of the war because the terrain calls for it. And we know that the Russians also believe the same thing because we're seeing them move artillery units into the Donbass as well. Um, and so we want to give the Ukrainians every bit of advantage that we can. That'll include training by the U.S. military on the howitzer artillery systems that it's giving to Ukraine. That training will occur outside of Ukraine. It'll be more of a train the trainers kind of environment. So it'll be a small number of Ukrainians that will be trained on the howitzers and then they'll be reintroduced back into their country to train their colleagues. Amid rumors, White House Press Secretary Jen Saki reaffirmed President Biden's position not to send U.S. troops into Ukraine. He doesn't think that's in our national security interests. Fighting in the war, though, is expected to intensify. And while the East may be the focus, places that had been safe havens like Lviv have been sent the message. 
there aren't designated boundaries for Russian aggression. I'm Clayton Neville. Michael? Thanks, Clayton. Regarding Mariupol, the strategic port city in the south, there is still a small group of Ukrainian fighters there holding out against the Russians in that destroyed city. The Russians say they're closing any exit routes, and the Ukrainian soldiers will be, as they coldly put it, filtered out. John Stolnes reports now on the slightly early end of the federal mask mandate on public transportation. John? The Biden administration announced that the Transportation Security Administration will no longer enforce the federal mandate requiring masks in all U.S. airports and onboard aircraft. Michael, that scene is playing out all over social media, onboard airplanes across the country as pilots, flight attendants, and airport employees announced to travelers that the CDC's mask mandate for travel has been lifted. U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mazel ruled federal health officials exceeded their authority in issuing the mandate, allowing operators the freedom to decide whether to require travelers to wear masks on their own. Five of the nation's largest airlines, Delta, American, United, Southwest, and Alaska Airlines, announced masks would be optional on their aircrafts. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. So this is obviously a disappointing decision. The CDC continues recommending wearing a mask in public transit. Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa praising the judge's ruling. We've been saved once again by the checks and balances of government. And that is a judge stepping in to say that the president exceeded his authority. The Association of Flight Attendants, the nation's largest union of cabin crews, is appealing for calm from passengers, noting it sometimes takes a day or two for word of something like this to trickle down. Saki was asked what passengers taking flights right now should do. It's safer for individuals who are flying to continue to wear masks. So we would say to anyone sitting out there, we recommend you wear masks on the airplane. On the ground, Amtrak and Washington, D.C. Metro both announced they would no longer require passengers or employees to wear face masks. The CDC had recently extended the mandate, which was set to expire Monday to May 3rd to give them more time to study the Omicron subvariant BA2. It's unclear yet if the Biden administration will appeal this ruling. I'm John Stolnes. First Light continues on Tuesday morning, and I've heard it's the small things. In fact, it's the small things Charlie Brown on Apple TV+. Kevin Carr is here. Good grief, Kevin. <laughs> Good morning, Michael. Yes, this is the latest Charlie Brown special. Of course, Apple TV+. Plus has the rights to all the Charlie Brown properties, so you can watch all the old episodes of them, but also they're still making Charlie Brown uh, short films and, and specials. I remember as a kid, it was always a big deal to watch the new one that came out or the old ones, you know, when they had the Great Pumpkin or Christmas Time or the Easter Beagle. And uh, they are still producing these and they've got a new Peanuts episode. It's uh, it's about 40 minutes long. It's on Apple TV Plus and it uh, pulls a bunch of stuff from springtime because it deals with baseball and you know we just had opening day and so a lot of people are excited about baseball and in this story charlie brown is trying to get his team to beat peppermint patty's team for the neighborhood championships of course you know charlie brown is the manager does not have a good track record at winning anything. Uh, but then his sister Sally finds a flower on the pitcher's mound and won't let him play there because she wants to protect the flower. And, you know, again, flowers and springtime. And you know what? It's a sweet little thing. You know, the Charlie Brown specials have always been about the joys and simplicities of childhood. And I, I think they are continuing with that. I mean, here 
the, all they worry about is baseball and flowers in this one. Those are the big, you know, focus points. And that's kind of how kids operate. And I think that it, it manages to hold on to the essence of what peanuts and childhood is about. And, uh, you know, kind of make this bigger world told from the eyes of uh, children that are younger than 10. I must say, at least based on the trailer, it looks and sounds like the uh, the old ones that were on television. Yeah, they, they certainly have kept the, the, the I guess, the, the, the delivery. And even to this point, they have a musical interlude in the middle of it that felt very much like stuff they would have produced in the 70s. They're still keeping the essence of what's always made Peanuts a wonderful thing to watch on the TV specials for well over half a century. All right. It's the small things, Charlie Brown on Apple TV plus how many little footballs for this production? Well, I'll give it, we'll give it four footballs or baseballs. We should do baseball since it's a baseball one. Uh, I'll give it four baseballs out of five. Uh, this one's a lot of fun. And it kind of took me back to my childhood, which you never left. <laughs> At least that's what my mom says. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. Sebastian Maniscalco. I'm a comedian. In my 20s, I was in, like, in a company, and I don't know, like, how marketing, sales. Yeah, you're a brand. You're a company. Yeah, and... Like Jay-Z says, I'm a businessman. Yeah. Yeah. To that... Remind me not to quote any hip-hop lyrics again. That was just a big miss. <laughs> when you first said it, I'm like, yeah, he's a businessman. Yeah, I nailed it at the end. I pulled it together. It just took me a minute. The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. Well, we're going to continue our look at interesting Senate races around the country this morning by going out to the great state of Nevada, which could be a pickup seat for the Republicans. There's a Democratic incumbent who might not be able to hold on to her seat. And to get some information on that now, we're joined by Humberto Sanchez, who covers politics there from the Nevada Independent newspaper. Welcome to First Light. Thanks for having me. You wrote at the very beginning of your most recent story that Senator Catherine Cortez Masto leads likely Republican opponent and former Attorney General Adam Laxalt by eight percentage points in a brand new poll. And then you quote the guy who runs the poll as saying, well, she's going to really have a fight on her hands. Uh, so how could you be eight points up in the poll and still be still have people concerned that you're not going to make it? Well, uh, there's some troubling signs for her in, in, uh, with, with the president's uh, approval rating in, in Nevada. Uh, a lot of times the, the Senate races are, are kind of uh, reflect the national mood. And uh, right now the president is not very popular and he's not very popular in Nevada. So she's going to have to overcome that again, no matter what lead she has right now. And give, also given the fact that we're still about six months away from that, that, that election day. Has she generally been popular in the state since she's been in the Senate? It's hard to say, like the, there hasn't been a whole lot of polling done in Nevada, actually. I think what's what's really telling with this poll is that she's the incumbent and she's polling well below 50 percent. So uh, that's a really red, big red flag for her. She's also running against a man named Adam Laxalt, which for anybody who knows Nevada politics even a little bit, that's a very famous name in Nevada, longtime senator. I assume a dad or uncle or cousin or what, but Paul Laxalt, a longtime senator, you know, a very close friend of former President Reagan. What's the relationship of Adam Laxalt to Paul Laxalt? Senator Laxalt is uh, is the grandfather of Adam Laxalt. Is he a strong candidate on his own right, or is it the name that's helping him? Uh, 
he's leading the 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 race right now. There's a primary. There's another uh, a candidate, uh, Sam Brown, who's a a, a, vet, a veteran and a businessman, and he is uh, also in eight points uh, behind the senator in a head to head. Um, that Laxalt has the name recognition and is the likely candidate uh, that the Brown is kind of the upstart and and we'll see how that uh, that primary shakes out. And no strong primary opposition for Senator Masto. No, she's she's uh, so far uh, not not in any serious trouble in that regard. So I know that in, in past years when Nevada has been looked at as a swing state and a lot of attention is focused on it, uh, people have focused on the fact that in the Las Vegas area, you have a lot of uh, strong service industry. And there were a lot of um, Latino voters uh, who work there. And but the rest of the state might be more conservative with the the union members in the Las Vegas area, more Democratic. Is, is that holding for this election? Yeah, that tends to be the case. The um, the strategy has tend, tend to been for Democrats is to try to run up Clark County, which is Las, where Las Vegas is based. Uh, it's the most populous county in the state. And then you try to limit your losses, keep the margins as close as possible in the rural in the rural counties and in Washoe, which is the other Washoe County is the other population center where Reno is located, which uh, has has flipped. It's uh, in, it's trended more Democratic lately, but it could go back at any given election. It's a very swingy uh, county. So what little thing are you keeping an eye on that will tell you this tells me the way this is going to go or may give me a clue? It must be something that you that you're keeping an eye on. Really, it's it's the whether Biden can uh, do anything to change those popularity numbers. If that's going to be very telling. So can the Democrats pass anything uh, between now and the election day that will help them make the case that they're they're better at governing than Republicans would be? This is sort of a side topic, but I want to get your uh, your information on this. We know that the Democratic National Committee just threw out the this early state calendar uh, where uh, Iowa and and uh, New Hampshire have dominated all the early activity in the within the party, and they and and now each state has to submit a proposal. And I see that uh, Nevada wants to come in and and get an early slot, maybe even be the, one of the first states to vote. Uh, what are they basing that argument on? And is is there a realistic chance that that could happen, that Nevada could take the place of Iowa or New Hampshire and go first? Yeah, I think there is. The, the, uh, the DNC wants to have a state that's more reflective of the general population. Iowa uh, and New Hampshire are considered somewhat more white of a population than Nevada is a majority minority state. Uh, it has high union representation. It has it takes a lot of boxes that the DNC is looking for in terms of a, of a state that they want to go first that sets the tone for the race that can help them win a general election. And uh, Senator Harry Reid helped uh, 2006. He helped make uh, Nevada the third state. And uh, the the there's a group in of, of politicians in Nevada right now that are trying to make that make them the first state. Uh, it, supplanting Iowa, uh, and they ha their argument again being that they better reflect the national population, the national electorate. So, what do you do? Do you just submit paperwork, or do you do a, a more uh, hands-on lobbying campaign? How does that work? The, the DNC just recently uh, uh, approved a plan that that's going to start this process that will ultimately be settled uh, in in June, as I recall. And uh, the, the DNC's bylaws and Rules Committee, Rules and Bylaws Committee will um, make that decision. Well, if any of those folks are listening right now, let me just point out that Nevada would be a lot more pleasant than New Hampshire in January. <laughs> just saying. 
Humberto Sanchez covers Nevada politics for the Nevada Independent newspaper. You can read his work at thenevadaindependent.com. And Humberto, thanks so much for bringing your reporting to First Light this morning. Thank you very much for having me. Somewhere over America, on board a Delta airliner, the pilot steps into the passenger cabin to make an announcement. The Biden administration announced that the Transportation Security Administration will no longer enforce the federal mandate requiring masks in all U.S. airports and onboard aircraft. How and why did this suddenly happen with the mandate in effect for just another two weeks? Let's find out from Kimberly Leonard, longtime senior health correspondent and now a policy and politics reporter for Insider. Welcome to First Light, Kimberly. Thank you. What is the first uh, ramification of this? It, today, is are the masks just not necessary in, in, these, uh, in any kind of public transit? Is that immediate? Well, the main question that most people had was for the airlines because, you know, they are such large corporations and there were people obviously on flights when the decision landed. And many major airlines have gone ahead and said that they will no longer require masks on their flights. They include United, American, Southwest, Delta, Alaska, and I expect that others will follow along as well. As far as uh, like buses and trains, places like that, it will probably be a lot more local what we end up hearing. But as far as the federal mandate goes, uh, it seems that the Biden administration is sort of deciding what to do next, whether they're going to appeal the ruling. So what is the legal chain of command here? If a court says this regulation is uh, not uh, constitutional, I believe the TSA is is the actual mandating body here in the case of airlines. Uh, does the TSA have to now tell the airlines you can do away with the mask mandate? Well, as far as the TSA goes, you know, when you're going through the airport, um, it's they're the ones that are then, you know, pushing the regulations and they're also the ones telling the airlines what to do. Now, to be clear, if the airlines were to choose to go ahead and ha- impose their own mandates, they could do that. It's not as though they're not allowed to do it. What the judge ruled yesterday was that the CDC did not have the authority to impose a mask mandate on all these different uh, modes of transportation, so trains, buses. Um, And so the question wasn't even one of constitutionality. It was whether the CDC legally can do something like this. And and they've had this mandate in place for, I want to say, two years at this point. Um, And it was supposed to expire May 3rd, but the Biden administration probably would have extended it um, just because that's, you know, they, they tend to be more cautious probably when it comes to public transit. Um, and so that was sort of where things w- were held until this latest decision. Does this extend also to airports? Yes, it does. It does. And again, there are individual airports who might say, mm, you have to do it within our facility. Um, and then let me just add individuals, you know, can wear masks if they want to. This isn't a you can't wear masks order. This is an order in which a judge says the CDC can no longer mandate uh, masks, but individuals and and individuals who wear good masks um, can still choose to go ahead and keep them on if they feel safer that way. So usually when we have cases like this, uh, it's not really over until it really is over. And can we assume that the Biden administration or the CDC will now challenge the ruling and uh, file an appeal and then ask for uh, the practice to be continued while the appeal is being heard? 
you know, it's really hard to say because there are there's more than just the public health aspect at play right now, to be perfectly blunt. There is an aspect that is political here. And there appears to be within the general population a hunger for back to normal. Um, I was looking at Twitter before this interview, and mm-hmm. there were a lot of folks who were tweeting out videos of people who had just boarded a flight and learned that they wouldn't have the mask mandate anymore, and they're shedding their masks and they're cheering. There appears to be some hunger to return to, you know, a maskless flight. However, then you also have to worry about passengers who could be immunocompromised, people who would prefer not to fly, but have to, maybe they're going to a funeral, maybe they're saying, you know, goodbye to a dying relative for the last time. And so um, it's, it's, it's not just measuring, you know, okay, are, is this going to prevent the spread or not? But, you know, what does it say to the public? And there might be a part of, of the Biden administration, certainly officials who might think, well, if we can blame this on uh, the judge, uh, Catherine Kimball Mizell, who was appointed by President Trump, if they could blame it on her instead of, um, you know, having to make a choice, then politically it might be easier for them. Is there anything that you've heard from the people you've talked with about the potential for uh, this ruling being used uh, as justification for um, striking down other mask mandates? Uh, I know Philadelphia has just done its indoor mask, reinstituted its indoor mask mandate. Uh, Could this be used uh, in that manner? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I know that they have been sued over it as well. Um, and there have been, you know, numerous lawsuits over issues, not just on masks, but vaccine mandates that have, you know, gone through the courts. Um, you know, it certainly could be used. There's, as I, as I said, there's a, there's a hunger for uh, a return to normalcy. And then there's probably a, a minority of the population that's very concerned and, um, it's it's all become a very you know politically fraught and divided topic, but um, I do I do agree that we could see this happening in localities that are imposing these mandates as well. All right, Kimberly Leonard covers policy and politics for Insider. You can work, uh, find her work to read at insider.com. And Kimberly, thanks for bringing your reporting to First Light. Thank you. As you know, we've been following the problems NASA is having with the tests of its new giant moon rocket, including another in a string of failed fueling tests late last week. Well, NASA is taking the 30-story rocket off the launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida and sending it back to the hangar for more work. It's the latest delay for the rocket's flight debut, and NASA says it'll be a challenge to meet a launch window in early to mid-June, as had been planned. The next opportunity to send an empty capsule to the moon would be at the end of June or in July. And if that test flight is successful, astronauts will be on board for the second launch, a lunar fly-around targeted for 2024, with a landing mission slated for 2025. This has been the First Light Podcast, featuring excerpts from our Tuesday, April 19 radio broadcast, produced by T.J. Coutini. You can hear our full show early every weekday morning. It's on the air or streaming from radio stations across America. I'm Michael Toscano. Thanks for listening to the First Light Podcast.
movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. Scott Grimes is here Thank with you. us. Voiceover, that is like my dream job. I think I just have too distinctive a voice and I can't manipulate it. That's why I'm right. not a good singer. This is how great Seth MacFarlane is. I went in to do it and I was talking like this and he goes, good, now just get rid of the neck thing that you just did because it's one, it's ugly. And then I just came out like this and came up with this guy named Steve Smith who has a tiny little lisp, but so does Scott Grimes, so it's perfect. What Women Binge, wherever you listen.